You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by T.D. Barnes, who served as a field engineer at the NASA High Range in Nevada for the X-15, the XB-70, lifting bodies and lunar landing vehicles. He also worked on the NERVA project at Jackson Flats, Nevada, and served in special projects at Area 51. He's the author of multiple books, including a three-volume book on Area 51 that was made for CIA. And you can find out a whole lot about what he's written and what he's done at his website, td-barnes.com. So, TD, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. My pleasure, man. So, I, when anyone ever has a, a long career doing intelligence work or things related to intelligence work, I like to ask how they got into it, because in a lot of respects... There are people that kind of stumble and bumble their way into these jobs and don't realize necessarily that this is going to be a career for them. And then there are those who go into high school knowing that they want to do a certain job. I mean, they're the Kelly Johnsons of the world who could see air at 12 years old. Mm -hmm. And then there are people who just kind of never even heard of the CIA before they had a conversation with them. Where do you fall into that spectrum? Actually, the CIA knocked on my door while I was in the Army. It was kind of a... Interesting way it came about. I was I served in the army as army intelligence in Korea, and got into electronic missiles and radar at Fort Bliss, Texas. Went to one school watching. I went, spent two and a half years doing that going to school, and uh, just one after another. And I became, you might say, top in my field. And the CIA had detected a new radar in Russia. And they're getting ready to build the A-12 that they're going to fly at Area 51. And they needed to know if this radar would enable the Russians to shoot down the A-12 that they that was going to replace the U-2. The Russians moved one to, to move the radar to Cuba, mm-hmm. and we knew about it. So the CIA and the NSA was flying ghost flights out of Biggs Air Force Base at El Paso, and they was what they doing is probing the Russians in Cuba 
make them turn on the radar and they take a look at it and it answer electronically and they can make it think it's tracking 10 planes, one plane coming in, going away, whatever they wanted. And they're able to uh, analyze this radar. And what they determined was, yes, the Russians were advancing fast enough that they would be able to shoot the plane down. And we never flew another flight over Russia. And this is started to develop electronic countermeasures also that try to it. find ways to... I was very advanced into counter-measures and counter-countermeasures. Uh, and the, um, uh, the uh, Army was getting ready to deploy the Hawk missile on the QS Florida for the Cuban thing. You know, we hadn't discovered the missiles yet right. in Cuba. This was before that. And also one to Europe for the um, Berlin Wall and the Iron Curtain. And the, we did not have the ECM, the current ECM that the Russians were using in their MiG-15s. So the CIA approached me to go on a flight, a couple of flights in the ghost plane out of Biggs. And we would make the Russians think we had a missile locked on them, so they'd turn on their ECM. And we was how, how, how we were able to get the ECM to, to program our missiles to defend against it. Right, so you basically were bait. We were bait. We, we flew up in C-97. I flew two missions. My wife did not know about this until <laughs> recent, bet, right, yeah. recent years. So it wasn't that far from, from El Paso to Cuba. And, you know, that had jumped all places, and it still is, mm -hmm. for anything in Central America, South America, or Columbia, any place. And uh, so I get up in the morning to leave and go out there and hop on this uh, ghost plane and take off. It's full electronics, antennas all over it. And once we got what we wanted, of course, they would launch the MiGs. They'd turn on the radar. They scared the death of us when we did start war. Mm -hmm. and, but anyway, we, we coordinated this with the Air Force at Homestead. And they'd launch a couple of F-100s, and they'd get between us and the MiGs, and we could haul back. Right. Go, go back, go back. Yeah. You were going <laughs> to say haul ass back. You yeah. say that. It's okay. We have, we have adults that listen. So, but, but that was my first introduction to the program at, at Air 51. However... I wasn't told that was Area 51. Right. You know, no need to know. But that was my introduction to the CIA. And then they tried to recruit me for uh, all kinds of things. They're actually, I stayed in contact. And then they, um, uh, when they actually already start flying the, the planes to Area 51, they, they signed me. I was picked up at NASA on the high range. And one of the seven sisters, the CIA had what's it called, the seven sisters. Six of them was the Air Defense Command radar sites, and one was my site, mm -hmm. which was 65 miles in Area 51. And every time they had a flight at Area 51 then with an A-12, they would notify us we're going to have something flying today, monitor it, but don't say anything or don't record it. And and then I had the only radar in the, that could track, the, the actually physically track the A-12. So when they went through the Mark 1, Mark 2, and Mark 3 stages, they would call me up. We got something you want. What you want? To I bet that was today. interesting. You're like, what's going yeah. on here? This is flying slightly faster. And they and uh, of course I knew something was flying at Area 51 because I, I wasn't radar was not my job there. I yeah. knew radar, but I was I was actually a technical. I was above that. Mm -hmm. And but but I was the only one on site that had clearance. Right. I came out of the army, still had my clearance, and the agency made sure that I kept it. I was their go-to man within NASA on that site. And they, I get a call when you got something you want you to track. We'd lock the doors to the radar room. I radar tell the radar operator go take a break, and we I I track the uh, whatever they're tracking. 
and then hand them the uh, chart, the velocity chart when we got through. Was there an understanding at this time that there was a secret program happening in Nevada in somewhere that CIA was running? I mean, the U-2 had been flying for a little while. I mean, No one knew, really knew about Area 51 then. The, uh, everybody knew the facilities out there, but the AEC was covered mm-hmm. on it, and also NASA. Right, it was the Nevada test site that was and, used for nuclear testing. And, and, like and it's interesting why they, why they picked Area 51 in Nevada for the U-2. The um, and why they put the CIA, you know, there was a lot of politics involved. The Air Force, General Major Flat, refused to build a plane with one engine in it, and that did shoot guns and drop bombs. Right. I mean, that, and we need and we need to know what the Russians are doing behind the Iron Curtain. We had lost over 200 air crew in Russia. The Air Force had getting shot down just trying try to get a photograph of what's going on. So anyway, so when they decided to to locate a site to tr- to track the, the or test flight to U two, they picked Nevada because there's only two hundred thirty seven thousand people in the whole state. And then um, during World War two, all the military services had moved from the West Coast to Nevada, made it the West Coast line of defense during World War two, thinking that the Japanese were going to capture the West Coast. Mm-hmm. So we had the Army, Navy, Marines, and Air Forces all in Nevada. So what was one more little installation stuck right out in the middle of all of these? And they didn't make it a big secret about it. You said it's going to be NASA tracking a um, high altitude the weather research. Good, good cover story. Well, and this is before Las Vegas turned into Las Vegas, yeah. right? Yeah, oh, yeah. It's, it's just a frontier. Yeah. And most people worked for the government back then. Right. You know, the gambling wasn't big or anything like that. Well, I mean, that's, you know, right next to New Mexico also where there's a lot of basically government facilities that were top secret there as well. Less than 5% of the people that ever worked at Area 51 knew the CIA was involved. Huh. Less than 5%. They had no, they didn't have a need to know. Right. My, and, and only the cadre, we were cadre. My group was 23 of us. We were specialists in pro, special project. We could live here. That, that was our base. But anyone else, they were the customer, and they couldn't even live in the state of Nevada. They, they commuted out of, mostly out of California. Even, even your A-12 people, they, they, they lived in Burbank in that vicinity. Right. And then they'd fly up every um, Monday morning or whenever on a, a C-47 or whatever. And right, like the people from Skunk Works and mm-hmm. others doing the yeah, Lockheed stuff. exactly. So I, you had to commute to work in a very interesting way also. It's not like there was a super highway leading to Groom Lake. No, we went out on Monday morning, and I was kind of special. I flew up in Queen Air, and there was, and, and, um, but the wife would take me out to the, we had it parked on the end of McCarran. We had a little building there with a chain link fence around it. Just didn't, no signs or anything. And we kept the plane inside the building. We'd go out there and we'd push it out by hand, open the gate and push it out, hop aboard, just take off. So we're you could done. avoid traffic because you flew to work every day. Mm-hmm. We flew. Yeah. And then came home Friday night. We stayed up there all week. And uh, it was, um, anyone that ever worked up there, they'll tell you it's the best assignment they ever had, even though you used up there, the, hard, the hardships. But the food was best in the world. There's no food better. I mean, they took care of us. Yeah. And well, you would think that, I mean, since the cadre was so small, and I think this is obvious now because you do have, like, Roadrunners International and where. Mm-hmm. There, there's a bit of a fraternity of people who worked out there who all kind of went through the same thing together and were clear to the same levels. 
Well, and what was interesting when you got out there, the, you know, like the um, pilots and all that, they couldn't even come in my building because we was working on some other projects. Right. And then, and even within my group, we would have different customers would help each other. And you knew basically what the other was doing. And you help him out if he needed them hand with something, but you didn't ask questions. Who are you doing this for? Or how does it work? Right. Or, you know, and we still don't. There's some things that we know that has not been declassified, and we still don't talk about it. Well, I mean, you're talking about counterintelligence in this case, but you also have to be worried about things like Soviet satellite reconnaissance and, and other things. Because that, oh, oh, this yeah. is the most top-secret facility in the United States. Soviet Union, you was there. Yeah. And they, they, we call them Ashcans. They had not launched a satellite. Of course, there wasn't that many satellites in those days. Yeah. But, they, but we'd get a, 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 a roster a security give it to us in the morning. Here's what they launched last night. Here's what's coming over. And we knew the times. And we would, um, we knew if, if it's RF seeking, and we shut down all emissions, or if it's infrared, we would have to move everything off the, the outside, move it in a hoot scoot shed or hangar or something like that. So you, you know, maybe people would push an A12 inside of a hangar if they knew the satellite was going over the top. Exactly. <laughs> and, it, and it's really a pain because we were doing, you know, stealth was CIA was really into stealth. The A12 was the first stealth plane. Mm-hmm. And we had it on the pole with a pylon for 16 months. Maybe you radar cross-section testing. Exactly. Yeah. And the uh, and every time satellite was coming over, if it was infrared, we would have to move the, take the plane off the pole, hide it. And we didn't find out many, many years later that when the Russians started declassifying stuff, they was able, they knew the exact shape of that plane all along because it, it left a shadow on the, dead, on the lake bed. And the infrared picked up the shadow of it. They knew the exact shape of it. Well, I, yeah, I imagine if you've got a 110-degree day, mm-hmm. that shadow would be at least 15, 20 degrees different. Exactly. You're certainly going to yeah. get different it, thermal signature from that. Exactly. So they knew the exact shape. Of it. They knew what it was doing, even though you didn't physically get to see the, uh, see the plane. Well, it didn't help out. them figure out how to shoot it down. Because, no, uh, no. The A-12 and its, and its sister plane, the SR-71, just... Extraordinary. I've, I've spoken. We. I did a podcast with. I don't know Buzz Carpenter, who was a yeah, SR seventy one pilot. Yeah. yeah. Um, who uh, they talked about the the countermeasures to being fired at it wasn't to maneuver. It wasn't to launch flares. It was to speed up. Mm-hmm. Right. It was basically speed. in less. Yep. We outrun the missiles. Yep. Yeah. They shot. They shot. We we flew during Black Shield. We flew twenty six missions over uh, North Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, and they'd shoot missiles at us, and they would. Sometimes they would shoot past the plane and then actually lock onto it and catch up with it. When the proximity fuse went off, the plane was going so fast it outrun the, the explosion. <laughs> and the only one that the only Blackbird, including the SR-71, that ever got hit with a missile was Dennis Sullivan in an A-12. He landed at, at uh, Cadena, and they found a little piece of shrapnel hmm. embedded in the plane. They got it at CIA headquarters now. That's the only missile, only missile there, piece of missile there, struck the Blackbird. And it's extraordinary because the engineering of this aircraft was so ahead of its time. Oh, right. And the fact that very few of them were lost, I mean, one of them was lost to the tag board trials where the drone basically threw through the back of the aircraft. Exactly, yes. How close, because actually a co-pilot was lost in that, uh, died in that actual... Um, yeah, Ray Torque. Yeah, yeah, Bill Park was a pilot. Yeah, was yeah, yeah, the M21, most of the M21, right. B21. The D21 was the tag board. Yeah. That had to have been, I mean, again, this this fraternity of just these people who were very few, 
and who spent a lot of time together Monday through Friday, right? Mm. The, the kind of camaraderie that was created at this must have been extraordinary. My my group, we either had a, a, a cruiser on Lake Mead, we had a cabin on Mount Charleston. And that's something we had in common, and we could plan and talk all week. And then we spent the entire weekend on the lake, my my group did. Mm-hmm. We And we'd take the families out there. The wives made sure there's no honeydew stuff for us to do. They had all the chores done, mm-hmm. so we'd immediately head for the lake. But what is very, very interesting is there was no divorces. Absolutely no divorces. Well, what's interesting is you mentioned this also on your website, that unlike a lot of these secret projects that CIA did, where they were looking for single men and for people that didn't have a familiar tie and didn't have any mm-hmm. kind of... They actually recruited you because you were married, because you had kids, exactly. because they understood the family home environment was stable and it was something that would, I guess, you'd be more psychologically adept to doing these kinds of operations. Yeah, you know, the serial guys are like Tom Cruise and Top Gun. Yeah. You know, and we didn't need that. Right, well, and that's the one really interesting thing also about not all the engineers, the pilots, everybody, everyone's kind of nondescript, right? It's not like... Mm-hmm. No one's walking in with the call sign Maverick, right? They're just normal guys who, I mean, Bill Parks is a great example of this, right? This guy yeah. is just, if you saw him on the street, you would not say he had flown oh, some right. of the most amazing aircraft ever made and crashed half of them because he was a test pilot. Oh, yeah, Bill yeah. Parks had more silk time yeah. than anyone I know. <laughs> Another was interesting one was Jack Layton that flew the A-12, agency pilot. He jumped out of three different planes that was on fire. And one of them landed. He landed in Everglades, spent the night with the alligators and rattlesnakes. Another was in the Pacific, took all night for the Coast Guard to find him. And then the third one was the YF-12, caught on fire at uh, Edwards. And we actually got a video of it. The entire flight, they they had a camera at Edwards that was able to track that plane. You see the the engine on fire, and the, of course the pilots are talking. They cleared the area, and then when they it burnt through the hydraulics. So, so uh, Jack and his RSO had to jump out. And just by coincidence, you know, the camera's still on the plane, both parachutes rolls right through the frame <laughs> as they're coming down. It, it, you couldn't have planned that if you You couldn't have planned it, it absolutely not. Well, I, as an engineer, as somebody who's kind of, you know, obviously loves building, it had to have been, there's no better place on earth for high-tech, cutting-edge engineering than Area 51 at this time. Area 51, to me, of course, coming off the NASA high range, uh, Area 51 was very boring. Okay. Because the NASA high range, we were doing the Area 15, the Area 70, the YF-12, the A-12 occasionally. And every day, was, and these were nail biters, Area 15. We weren't testing planes. It was a workhorse. Right. And everything that went to the moon in Apollo, we tried it first in Area 15. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. And so it was a very dynamic um, work schedule. And we got out to the area, and particularly when we started doing stealth at your arch cart, they'd bring a prototype out for us to look at, the RCS on, uh, radar cross-section on. And we may not, may not hear from them for another three months. Mm-hmm. And we went there, out there all week. So we had a lot of engineers, a lot of, uh, we, we, you know, all of us were energetic and let's, let's do something. So we did a lot of projects that were not on the books that later became projects just because we had the, the knowledge, we had the toys to play with. Because we put everything we get, we put it on the pole. Right. And this is a funny story. We had um, some, you know, the Nellis uh, Gunning Range surrounds Area 51. And this is just a big no-fly zone. And on their maps, it's a big square. They called it the, the box, the right. Air Force guys. They said a lot of names, but that's what they called it. 
So we had a one day one of the, a young pilot he decided he'd land on that long airstrip. You know, they got off the head down there. And he landed and and nothing happened really and he got back and said, Boy, that's neat, you ought to see that place. So another one landed, F one oh five. We kept the we kept the pilot for two weeks debriefing him, but we would Nellis had their plane back. And we actually put it on the pole on the pylon <laughs> and sent a photograph of Nellis here in your plane. And that stopped the emergency flights. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. But but we that's what we started doing is is we you know when we did the MIGs, we put the MIGs on the Right, on I wanted to ask you about that because it wasn't just looking at our aircraft. It was no, we saw anything we got our hands on, we we realized that every plane gave a different radar uh, signature. And that really became a project. They came out of boredom. Us, hey, let's put that thing on post. Well, there's like, because we had time on our hands. Yeah, because you did everything from the MiG-21, the MiG-17. These were premier Soviet fighter aircraft in oh, Vietnam and even beyond that... We, I can't imagine how good the intelligence from understanding these aircraft from an electronic the, intelligence point of view. The kill ratio nine, uh, in, in Vietnam at the time was 9 to 1 against us. And the, the Russians came out with a new MiG-21 fish bed. And we thought it was the plane. And, uh, of course, the Iraqi defected to Israel with a brand-new MiG-21. We got our hands on it in January 1968. And the first thing we did was tore it down, see how they built it, did a technical uh, evaluation of it, and then we uh, flew it. And on the first try, the Navy came in. The Navy was more interested in the Air Force, even though the Air Force was running the flight dynamic. I mean, the uh, uh, Ford Technology Division out of Wright Patterson was heading up the testing part of it. And the but the Navy had was losing more planes, but they came in and flew against the MiG twenty one. And on the first flight, we got a hundred percent kill against the Navy. Within two months, they started uh, Top Gun. They they realized it's not the planes; our, it's just our people don't know how to fight. Right. And we, and what we realized is, it take a pilot in Vietnam probably ten missions before he learned enough about the the way they fought and and the planes that he might survive the war. We decided let's give those pilots those ten missions in Nevada rather than Vietnam, and that's exactly what we did. And it, then the uh, Air Force started the, the red flag exercise. Right, right, which is right here. Yeah. 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 And, then, and then we actually uh, established a, a squadron of MiGs at Tonopah where they could fly against the real thing. And the guy at Tonopah would actually play the Russian national anthem so they would fight like a Russian rather than American. Right. You know, expose the guys to the real thing. And we'd actually send people off to um, Samoa. It was one of our training places. They they were trained by the Russians, and they'd fly into the Russian MiG-21s. And they got crossways with the Russians, so we'd go in. And our pilots actually flew with them and learned the tactics that they had been trained to, to fight like a Russian. Right, which is very different. I mean, in the Army, we have the National Training Center where people, we dress up American vehicles to look like Russian ones. Exactly. And they certainly do the same tactics. Top Gun, they take... American aircraft that have, or Allied aircraft that have similar characteristics, perhaps. But Tonopah is literally, these are MiG-21s, right? Are, these are Russian aircraft, the real the, thing. The, the real thing. We, yeah. had, we had two MiG-17s that we got. When uh, we got a lot of stuff from, from Israel during the Six-Day War. Right. They captured on the battlefield. And that's where we got a lot of our radar. That's one of my specialties, was Soviet radar. We got them. We needed, as we developed in stealth, we needed to know what the Russians were going to see. So we had to use their equipment to look at what we were doing. Right. So we got our hands on a lot of the Soviet radar and the 
and um, a couple of Syrians landed on the wrong airstrip during the Six Day War. So that's how we got our hands on on the mid seventeens. Well, I mean, it's it's a lot more than just understanding their radar because of fighting them. It's also understanding their radar because of actually manufacturing new aircraft and kind of tactics. I mean, I remember the story, the B-1 was developed to fly in low because we found out later on that the Russian look-down radar was essentially non-existent. It was crap. Yeah. And so that kind of intelligence coming in not only helps us fight a war, but it also helps us to develop and procure and create new tactics and everything else, how important that is mm. for fighting. Yeah. You know what's interesting is the DIA was almost as involved as CIA was, or maybe more so. Mm-hmm. There's a different role. They, they dealt with the countries. In fact, they, they're the ones that made the deal with the with the Israel for the, the MiGs and that sort of thing. They're just now starting to declassify all of that. Mm-hmm. Well, it was a CIA facility, and but the DIA was the one that brought them in, and the Air Force did the manage the, the scheduling in the flights and that sort of thing. Them in the, in the Navy, so it was a, a, a group effort. Did you un- so this, there's a very famous story about the CIA sort of disinformation campaign about keeping Area 51 secret. And I'm not going to talk about aliens. Don't worry. Yeah. Um, but the concept of kind of letting that stupidity go instead of stepping in and saying, no, 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 was pretty ingenious. It was. The it, idea of yeah. let people chase flying saucers because then they won't be looking for the X. Yeah, you know, they look ridiculous, it, you know, and then yeah. they really see someone, something, they're not, no one's going to believe them anyway. Right. I, did you understand when you were there that kind of the, the mystique of Area 51 or what it would become, kind of that? Not really. I think that we... Most of us out there had worked on classified projects before. And uh, and it was just something we were re- real proud to be doing. We knew we were doing a lot of good. It, it, and it, But, you know, we regret now we didn't take photographs. Of course, we couldn't at the area. But even out at the lake, we just didn't, we just didn't take photographs and that sort of thing. In fact, I'll tell you, uh, while I was on the NASA high range, uh, one of the H-15 flights, the engine didn't uh, ignite. He had land on Mud Lake up at Tonopah. So they went in and, and got the X-15, put it on a flatbed, and got us Ford Beatty, where we were living, that's where the radar site was, was week, it was Friday, late Friday, and the trucks were not allowed to cross Death Valley on weekends. So the trucks sit in my driveway all weekend with an X-15 <laughs> on it. I didn't take a single photo. The X-15 sit in my driveway. In your driveway. We I... just didn't think about it. It wasn't a big deal. Right. Well, I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? You look oh, back and like, man, anybody, I should have taken a picture what, of that. I just like the radar sighted Beatty. Uh, spent years there. Never th- I don't have a single photograph of her then. I mean, in, of me and it or any of the people. We got some that NASA took, but we don't have, you know, our own, own photographs. Did you work closely with the engineers who actually were creating these aircraft? Like, was there a, a conversation with... Like when you did the when we did the, the radar cross section for the for the A twelve, did you go back to Kelly Johnson and team and be like, "Here's what it looked like, and here's how you you know." Yeah, yeah, we yes, they they had in fact that we we did all the data processing on it and uh, not only the radar but the data and everything. Yes. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. 
Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. What, how much of a collaborative process was that? I mean, that, that's... It, it seemed like it was somewhat siloed. It wasn't much. Yeah. You didn't really, t- you didn't, t- just certain people could talk to each other. Right. And uh, uh, I don't, I'm not, e- I'm not even sure who talked to, to the engineer that wasn't me. Yeah. Uh, that, that did that. They, well, I think, I think you're probably, it was um, uh, Jim Friedman. This is, because uh, no one knew exactly what we all did. Right. Uh, even though it was there, you know, you did things in your own little room. But Jim Friedman, and this is kind of funny, when they were just a few years ago, they, when, I think it was Danny Jacobs was interviewing uh, Colonel Slater, their commander, and, and Jim w- w- was mentioning that he was the one that would pick up the CIA dispatches from Langley out of McCarran. I think it was Frontier Airline was bringing them in. And then, and then, as the evening, then he would go by Warner Weiss's office, the, the CIA commander, and pick up the dispatches going back. Slater had no idea, and him and Warner were just—they were just as close as brothers. Hmm. He had no idea that uh, 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 someone was picking up the dispatches and going back and forth. He just didn't have a need to know. Well, it's a question about how how much did you know? You mentioned that people didn't know CIA was necessarily involved, and certain people didn't. Were you fully cognizant that CIA was your customer? I was. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And but, but that was because you were part of the cadre. Was but everyone else wasn't necessarily. No. no. Because I'd worked for them before. There was five of us that were special. Uh, they kept, and we were the ones that flew the Queen there. Mm-hmm. And the uh, we CIA went. You know when they formed the Science Technology Division in 1962. Well, they um, at the time they. They weren't really that active, hadn't made a business out of Area 51. It was just day 12. But by 1968, they saw that they were into stealth. The CIA said, we're going to continue at your arch card. It's gone. Mm-hmm. We're going to stay here. For, and they stayed for another 10 years. And a lot of people wondered what they, how they'd been doing for 10 years that no one knew about. But we were doing the stealth and... and uh, and, and things like that. And the, was that working on some of the, like the Have Blue stuff? Or, have, have Blue. We which had, becomes the all, F-117. All kind of, pro, we, we did a lot of prototypes that never sold a lot today. They were strictly uh, technology demonstrators just to see uh, what, what would, how they'd work. And well, how much of that was to try to develop American technology and how much of it was that try to prepare ourselves for what other countries might be developing? Uh, we, well, t- take the talking radar for example, that I talked about in Cuba. Well, we immediately built our own talking radar so that we didn't have to fly day 12 over Cuba or someplace to see if, if our ECM and whatever was working. Well, that became a practice out there, and it, and it became a laboratory. The CIA made it into a laboratory where someone come out with something new, say Texas Instrument came out with a pod to go on B-52 for some purpose. Well, they didn't, against something in China or Russia, where well, they didn't have to fly to foreign countries to test it. They flew to Area 51, and they fly over, 
and that is it. You know, we had everything there. That became we we actually became a business, mm -hmm. and 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 we actually call them customers. Anyone outside of our group was a customer. Even the CIA could be a customer if they came in with something that was off the wall. Right, but I, we we skipped over this. It was important to, that you work for a contractor. Yeah, now, you weren't a CIA employee necessarily. No. This is all through the contractor, just the same way the Nevada nuclear test site mm -hmm. is run by contractors. So. You work for one as well. Yeah, everyone was classified as working for the CIA for the per for a, a reason. Nevada had a state law that anyone, any contractors working in the state over thirty days or something, had to get a, a, a card, work work card for their employees and mm -hmm. that sort of thing, because of gambling and all that. Right. So the way they they got around, it, they said everybody works for the CIA, works for the government. So that we hid under that umbrella. And, but we reported directly to the CIA. Right. Uh, we did not report any uh, any of the company people, any, the company boss. Either we were for uh, EG&G. We didn't report EG&G management. We reported directly to whoever was assigned to us in the CIA. Right. Was e even though EG&G is one of the most highly cleared contractors, yeah. I mean, they were involved in every single program, especially a lot of the early nuclear stuff. So they certainly had the clearance. But this is as need to know as it the gets. Need, the need yeah. to know, and the uh, and then what? The, and then 1968, when they started moving out the A12, Oshkard, and they they cut they cut down the all the forces they had there. The CIA at that point told the EGNG, we don't want any more of your test site people. We want we want pick our own people. We're going to they'll still be working for you, but we're going to recruit them. Mm -hmm. That's another thing a lot of people don't know. The CIA didn't, when they were recruiting for Oxcart in particular, they didn't trust the FBI enough to let them do the security clearance that they did their own clearances. And they, it, it, which is rare. I mean, that's yeah. the, most. I mean, even for case officers, they mm -hmm. they use the FBI or OPA. But they did not. But, but the um, but you know the U two program, Oxcartone was more highly classified than the Manhattan Project. Mm -hmm. Another thing came up in the, this is really recent in last August. Uh, one of the, the U-2 pilots, Tony Bravacra, and I were invited back to the Def Defense Intelligence Agency to sit on a panel. Well, he was Air Force. We trained him at Area 51 on the U-2, but he was Air Force. He never flew for CIA. So during the course of the panel, he told about how he got recruited. I sit there listening. It was so different from the CIA. And, uh, and, and uh, one thing they had in common is all the pilots had been F-84 pilots at Turner Air Force Base. And all of a sudden, well, Gary Powers actually bumped with, with Tony. Mm -hmm. One day, Tony, uh, Gary wasn't there anymore. And they started disappearing. And, and, and then Tony, got when he arrived at Area 51, he found out where they were. Right. Here they were, and they couldn't talk to him, because they were CIA by this time. Oh. And they still they couldn't talk to him. But anyway, uh, so, I, so when he got through, I mentioned uh, about how they selected the CIA pilot. I said, you know, they, their cover was high-altitude weather testing for NASA. But actually, almost all of the first class were already flying out to the Nevada test site. They fly in the F-84s through the atomic bomb test. Mm -hmm. he, Tony had never heard of that. So then he run it by General, Major General Pat Halloran, their friend of ours, that also flew the F-84s. He'd never heard of it. They had never heard about their fellow pilots that they bumped with at Turner was flying through atomic bomb test. But that's something we had in common with the with the atomic bomb program was our pilots 
flew out there. Right. Well, I mean, again, geographically, if people on the East Coast or other where don't understand the geography of Nevada, it's Groom Lake and the, the, the Nevada test site are essentially, mm. you, you, you can accidentally go from one to the other. You don't know if you're on one or the other. It's basically just desert. So, yeah, there probably was a lot of overlap there. Um, that had to have been uh, somewhat bittersweet when Oxcart was, ro- was rolled up. I know that you went on and did a lot of work afterwards with that. Um, but just as far as an engineering kind of just it's yeah, there's no I mean, the aircraft, it's just so it's perfection. In, in, it, it was. And um, one of my things, they brought me out there. Um, they were trying to get this is not part of Oxcart. But they were using Oxcart vehicle before they left to get Mark three RCS with the flying over with the radar. Well, they had a heck of a time. You know, if they didn't pick up that plane and it's on the horizon, it'd be coming in so fast that the radar couldn't physically slew fast enough in altitude right. to ever, ever capture it, you know. Well, they, um, of course, I was used to tracking missiles before I, while well, I was in the Army, and then I tracked thousands of them out of White Sands, which are fast, and then I was on the S-15, which was almost Mark 7, twice as fast as the A-12. Mm-hmm. So they rushed me out there and brought in, we went to uh, McGregor Range down by El Paso and picked up one of my Nike radars that I had trained in in the Army and brought it out there. That became our primary radar. And, that, and so we, we managed to get some uh, Mark III radar cross-sections. But that was for st- the benefit of still. The CIA was already looking ahead. That wasn't even part of our chart. Mm-hmm. There's an opportunity. Let's get it while we can. How much of working on stealth was to try to develop countermeasures to other countries working on stealth. I mean, I mean, we didn't, we didn't do much of that. No, no, no. We were so far ahead of everybody else. We when were in technology. What's funny is that you know the, the stealth technique came from Russia. Yeah, you know. <laughs> well, so did a lot of the titanium. Yeah, the titanium the actual, too. Uh, yeah, A12, yeah. yeah for the A12. Which is a fantastic story if you get a chance that 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 all the front companies that were created to buy titanium from the Soviets to build the uh, the A12 and the SR71. Um, what was, was there a moment at Area 51 or even at the Nevada high range where you kind of just stopped and said you were amazed or it was just like, I I know you kind of got a little bit jaded might be the wrong word where just kind of seen so much stuff. It became kind of, um, like you said, Area 51 was boring, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people out there are going to be like Area 51 is boring, but was there a time where your jaw just dropped where you just could not believe that you can talk about Mm-hmm. That you could not kind of believe what you were seeing. It did, uh, particularly with the stealth. That was a very interesting project. Uh, you know, we went through a lot of trial, trial and error. We got it where the radar looking at the plane couldn't see it, yeah. but it's reflecting it. It'd be you have radar here on another hill or something, it's picking up the signal. Right. So we had to address all those sort of things, you know, and so that was quite a, a challenge to come up with a true stealth. Plane. And we made the A-12 about, about 90% stealth. Well, it helps when it flies as fast as it yeah. does. Also. Yeah, it's speed. Well, right. there's no way. It, it carried 80,000 pounds of fuel. There's no way you'd hide 80,000 pounds of fuel from radar. Well, and you're not going to... And then sur- temperature. Right, thermal. You're not going to be able yeah, to hide... Thermal, you know. Yeah. The, the temperature flew, actually. You know, the, around the uh, air intake, you get as high as 2,200 degrees. Windshield 800. And it was, just, it was a hot plane. Right. 
How much, how much did you cross purpose with what NASA was doing or was it completely siloed? No, we, we, we really worked together with NASA quite a bit, the designers, because we were doing the SB-70, which was a Mark III plane also, a bomber. Mm -hmm. Is and that it, the Valkyrie? Yeah. yeah. And it used the honeycomb type skin, whereas Lockheed was um, using the titanium. And they compared a lot of notes and on the engines and just a lot of comparison back and forth between North America and, and, and Lockheed on that as, they, as mm -hmm. they developed that. It's amazing there's some of these, these gorgeous aircraft that never really see the light of day. I mean, the, the XB-70 is a great example of this. We're just, some engineer somewhere was able to design the pr some of the prettiest aircraft ever made. They oh. just didn't necessarily fly as well as they should. I love that XB-70 program. I was on it from the day, first flight. And, they, uh, and, it, and that was kind of a funny story. They, uh, you know, it was kind of a joint NASA Air Force project. And, uh, but NASA... I mean, the Air Force wouldn't give NASA the beacon code when it first started flying. And so we had to skin track it. Well, we, at, at, as far as Beatty, we, unless you got very high, we couldn't, didn't have a good skin track. They tracked it at Edwards, but not, not up range. And uh, we kept trying to get a lot of jealousy between NASA and the Air Force on that. And, but the Air Force was having a problem with their radar. They couldn't maintain lock for some reason. It's just they've gone through all kind of difficulties with it. Well, my, my radar operator at, at Beatty had worked at the Cape, and that's where our Mod 2 radar had come from. We use very antique radar, by the way. And one day was at the, at the bar at the Shank Club there at Beatty after a, a flight, and he banged down on the, the uh, bar, and he said, I remember the code. He said, Air Force is notorious for never changing their code. So... Uh, next day, we was having a mission that should be 70. So they, uh, Bill uh, tuned in that code to the, to the beacon. And we even with the, the B-70 sitting on the ground at Edwards, uh, we could, it triggered the beacon just like uh, it almost saturates your receiver. Right. It, it was a big beacon. And he, he got it, and he said, shall I? Uh, we notify Edwards we got track, and... Uh, and uh, we said, no, just wait a while. So Air Force is thumbing along, thumbing along, and, the, the, and they're going to have to abort the mission. So uh, we said, I give Bill to go ahead. He announced on the intercom, to, went all everywhere. Beatty radar, full off track, zero, zero, 001, which was the plane was flying. And I mean, the airway just got just as quiet as could be. And then the Norm Hayes down at Edwards, he said, Beatty, uh, you got radar tracked? Firmly, sir. We're tracking. So we went ahead and sold radar. We did the mission on one radar track, and that's ours at Beatty. We fired that beacon because the Air Force dropped, kept dropping off and everything. And they, and I think it was about two missions later, they took off at Palmdale and land, landed at Dryden. NASA took over from the Air Force. Mm. And, uh, but it was, it was kind of fun the Air Force just wouldn't give, wouldn't share with us. I mean, I can understand the need for security and compartmentalization, but these are all overlapping programs. Yeah. CIA, NASA, Air Force. It's always been that way. It's yeah. such a shame so much money wasted hiding technology. And, and it's the same way with your intelligence. Right. You know, Truman hated, well, everybody hated the CIA or OSI. And, and uh, they, just, 
dissolved all the intelligence war at a right. month after World War II ended. Right, OSS was dissolved, yeah. and yeah. And it's always been a, a struggle. Yeah, I mean, it, it, but looking at, especially going to the 1960s when I became so absolutely fundamental to know what was happening inside the Soviet Union, and it really was overhead reconnaissance and geospatial intelligence that was going to be the solution to this because our human intelligence assets were non-existent. It's sad, though, that there was still this kind of compartmentalization of information and, and parochialism within these different organizations. The battles that went on between CIA and Air Force behind the scenes over the U-2. Yeah. Just, it's just amazing. And it reminds me of, of uh, General Gibbs. He was uh, Dick Bissell's right-hand man, a deputy. And it ruined his military career. Right. They, after he went back into the Air Force, they wouldn't have anything to do with him. And, you know, he never made another star. And uh, uh, another was, was Doug Nelson. He was a colonel at the time, and, and LeMache sent him to March Air Force Base to spy on the U-2 program when it started. But Doug liked the U-2 program, and he became a – where he wouldn't report back to, to uh, LeMay. Which is the – I mean, if you think about it logically, and I know we're looking at it in hindsight, but LeMay's strategic air command depended on knowing where Soviet – strategic missiles were mm-hmm. and the U-2 was providing that information yeah. so LeMay should love the U-2 because it's allowing him to develop targeting packages for mm-hmm. everything and yet it's this parochialism this kind of they're getting more money than we are for things that yeah. we should be doing yeah. that that caused I, I wonder what would have happened again this is kind of a counterfactual what would have happened if people had worked together at this point and how exactly the, the redundancy we would have avoided yeah. the money we would have saved you know what was interesting too. You know, we're talking about the, the Cuban thing when we de- detected the, um, the evaluating the talking. Mm-hmm. Well, we 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 detected that they had a talk this radar in the first place. It's reflections off of ICBMs being flown inside of Russia. So after we got through with the Cuban thing, we actually put a, a big antenna right outside of Morgantown, New Jersey, right off the turnpike, aimed it at the moon. And just a matter of weeks, we had pinpointed every radar site in Russia, just from reflections off the moon. Reflections off the moon. Well, that's interesting. This is a great. Yeah, you're you're too young maybe to have worked on BMUs. Yeah. When they fired that thing up, they thought we were under full attack because they picked up the moon rising over the horizon. It's wonderful to hear those, those almost not almost disasters, but those early engineering mess ups because Mm -hmm. we learn so much from mistakes. I think that's really what kind of Area 51 was designed to do was to learn from, to have a place to screw up. Yeah. And to have the money to the, screw up and the freedom to screw up. We we had a lot of what we called OS moments. Yeah. And the, uh, I, I, a little funny thing, when we were doing the MiG-21, actually we had put it back together and before we flew it, we would do an evaluation of the engine. The engine had 125 hours on it, brand new engine. And, well, by Russian standards, it was, you know, because it was a throwaway. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't rebuild them like we do. But anyway, they, we tied the plane down for the military uh, power. The brakes wouldn't really hold it with that engine at full power, you know. So we tied it down, and we was going to start our engine test. Everybody and their dog wants to watch this, watch this MiG-21 test. And someone noticed their film badges. You know, we, we carry on our security badges, we carried those amateurs mm-hmm. and film badges, these loaded with junk. Someone said, hey, we better gather up our, these film badges. Someone was like, we'll get their badge search through the engine. So we gathered up all the film badges, about 25 of them. 
And we, and I always like tell her, we gave it to Gomer Powell. <laughs> that wind just just sitting there screaming, you know, and then the old planes are tugging, and then Gomer gets right up in front of it. Golly, he sucked every one of our badges through the midget. We hadn't even got to fly the plane yet. <laughs> and we had to have it back to Israel in two months because they were going to use it for some kind of celebration back there. And fortunately, some of the Pratt Whitney guys built the J-58 for the, for the Blackbirds was still on the site. And they tore it down and polished out the dings and stuff and got it flyable again. But that's one of those moments, oh, God, what are we done? Well, I remember the, one of the first, uh, and this is, again, probably before you were there. It was way before you were there. It was the U-2 pilot. But they just did a taxi test for the U-2. And it took off by accident. Yeah. yeah. That's, again, that's where Area 51 allows you to do these things that you can't do anywhere else because you're there to screw up, really. I mean, that's you're learning from the mistakes, and that's what the, you want to try to do. Hank Martyr, who was one of the IP out there for the U-2, was one of my best friends. And, and um, he talked talk about how they would go up, and every flight they broke the world's altitude record and couldn't tell anyone. Mm. But they would—they didn't have any manuals at that time, no dash ones, and they didn't have any simulators. So they'd try stuff, and they'd come back in and say, man, don't try this, it'll get you killed, you know? yeah. And they wrote the books. But you got to admire those pilots. They, they, uh, all the pilots that flew, different things at Area 51, the bird of prey, the tacket blue, you know, the proof of concept planes that, yeah. I wonder if this thing will fly, let's find out. And they hop aboard and here they go, you know. Well, so the test pilots there and at Edwards were basically their job was to do things no one else ever done oh, yeah. before and to see if it worked or it killed them. Yeah, Joe Walker was one of my best friends. You know, got killed in the, in the, um, in the uh, midair with the, right. with the Valkyrie. There should be Sydney. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, I got to tell you a story. Uh, it might be of interest. Uh, when I, I got the Bayer radar, uh, a Bayer tractor station, I noticed, on, you know, we, we plotted the, um, uh, course and altitude and everything, or the whatever we're flying, mainly the X-15, on a, on a X-5 plotter, big, big old plotter. And and the, you had three radar sites. You had one at Edwards, you had one at Beatty, one at Ely. And it's all ganged together. And watch, whichever one was providing the best data is one that they would use as the primary. Well, anytime that would uh, switch over from Edwards, switch over to Beatty, or, or switch to Ely or whatever, there was a 2,000 foot jump in altitude. So I, uh, it concerned me and, and I noticed that the Beatty radar always agreed with altitude being reported by the B-52 and the F-15, right, right to the foot. And, but the other two always had this little jump. So I mentioned it to the, um, uh, Edwards one day, I said, you know, we got a problem here. We, I'm seeing a 2,000 foot jump in, uh, altitude on all these flights and the uh, operator down there said well that's the inherent problem we've always had that it, it just ignored well, I'm inherent hell you know because I see when when uh, Edwards would lock on the beef uh, anything sitting on the ground tarmac at Edwards it's short at 2,000 feet right which is problematic when you're low to the ground so, right? one, so one day they uh, uh, the number three um, Bird was going to overhaul, and the B-70 wasn't going to be flying. We had about a week or so of downtime. So I just got on the, the uh, uh, horn, and, and our communications went to White Sands, went to Vandenberg, it went everywhere. And, and so I got on there, and I called up my counterpart at uh, uh, 
uh, Edwards, and I said, you know, this we've got some downtime. It's a good time for us to fix your and Ely's radar problems. The boy got quiet. And he tried to shut me off. And, that, and each side had a NASA employee as a monitor. Mm-hmm. We worked on incentive-type projects. So, you know, he... Uh, and he stepped out and he gave me the thumbs up, you know. He knew what I was going to do. And then I said, John, I said, no, it's not an inherit. There's no such thing as an inherit problem in radar. I said, you've got a 2,000-foot error in your in Ely's radar. And you can't tell a pilot when he's within 2,000 foot of the ground. I said, you're going to kill someone. Yeah. He tried to shut me up and he said, well, it's Beatty's radar problem. And I said, no, it's not. He said, well, mine and Ely's agree. He, I said, that doesn't make any difference. You're 2,000 foot off. Beatty is the only radar that's working right. Right, because you were, the radar was the same as when the aircraft. Right? Yes, yeah. exactly. So he tried to shut me up, and this was going into the pilot's room. Joe Walker was in the, in the pilot's lounge. And when he tried to shut me off on it, Joe got on there, and he said, affected me, there'll be no more flights on the NASA high range until this is fixed. So they worked for about two weeks. They tore the radar down. They put them back together. They finally found what it was, was a field engineering modification that came out in the 1940s. Actually, they built a uh, radar, and they applied it to the one in the, in the, um, at Beatty, but the other two radars had never got modified. So it had been two decades, and they hadn't been modified. Yeah, all this yeah. time. And, uh, but they fished them. Yeah. And, and uh, of course, I got a became station manager, and the uh, uh, company got a big bonus uh, uh, for, that, for that quarter. Because the way we worked on NASA range, the, the contractor was given X number of dollars for each quarter. And then every time you screwed up, and this could be anything, like buying, not going to the cheapest vendor for your tires, for the trucks, or, or a vehicle, anything, they'd do knock it knocked it off you know yeah. and you actually end up owing yeah. <laughs> so that's how the contract we worked under and um, so we got a big bonus uh, because of that when you probably saved some lives at Edwards I mean because, I, I would think so yeah because, I mean it, it, the proverbial envelope I mean they pushed every limit you possibly could and I can imagine a 2,000 foot difference it, in the radar is problematic it was funny though the the, um, the side manager when I I didn't even check it with him because I knew he, he was too weak ever address anything like that and boy he whirled around he was in the same room with me he said boy he just glared and he said you're on your own but the nasa guy came out gave me yeah. the thumbs up i knew i was on solid ground but because i was right right and it was a safety issue more than yeah. anything yeah well td barnes uh is the president of the roadrunners international he he is an author a prolific one and you can find a lot of what he's written on multiple websites but the one that has some great information is td-barns.com. There's also a much longer website, area51specialprojects.com slash barns slash area51, which gives a lot of the story that we just talked about in a written form. So, TD, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. We truly appreciate it. It's fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we'll post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTL SpyCast. That's INTL SpyCast. 
Talk to you next week. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.